Hey Valley Church, it is Jersey Sunday and I wore everyone's favorite jersey, the referee jersey, right? There are referees all around campus, so we're hoping that maybe you're coming uh, to one of the services. Maybe just knowing that you can wear any jersey you want to church is the thing that is going to make you come to one of our services today. Uh, so I hope so. Um, but if you can't make it, uh, maybe you're at a state, at a country, at a wherever you are, we're so glad that you're able to join us to, to be with us today. Um, you know what, real quick, I need to grab something and uh, I'll be right back. This is what I wanted to show you, check this out. This is the biggest letter I have ever received. And look who it's from. It's from uh, my now wife. Uh, we were dating and on Valentine's Day, by the way, subtle hint uh, men out there that uh, Valentine's Day is coming up. This, look at the size of this thing. This is what she sent to me when I was in college. Like I got to go down in college and get this giant, not package, but giant mysterious envelope. And uh, do you, you wanna know how much I love you? I did, I wanted to know. And look at that. This is so ridiculously big. And uh, there's a picture. She, like, it's missing so much because of how old this is. The, the postmark was uh, 1997. And it says Carrie and Burnden. Isn't that real sweet? I think there was supposed to be another letter there. Uh, but it was, it was my Valentine's Day gift. Uh, it was much needed encouragement, like in, in such a, a crazy season of life. College, like so much is going on. You're growing up so much. You're so far away from so many people you know and love, and you just need some encouragement. And that's exactly what that was on Valentine's Day, to receive that from my girlfriend. Uh, it, just, it just filled up my cup. It was so awesome. I want you to know, today we are in Acts chapter 23, and uh, we're going to see that in the midst of so many obstacles, Jesus appears to Paul once again, and this time he says something so powerful to encourage Paul right where he is. He encourages him, and he gives him a, a pat on the back saying, you're, you're on point, you're on the mark, you have your assignment, and you're doing so well. If you missed last week, you're just going to have to go to valley.church. I'm not going to sum up where we were, but we uh, are going to actually read the last uh, section, just so you kind of know where we are. Uh, it's the next day as we enter into chapter 23. It's the next day that the commander, he still could not figure out why Paul was being accused of all of these crazy things, and, and so he instructed the chief priests and he instructed all these judicial people, the Sanhedrin, to gather for a pre-trial. He's just trying to figure things out. And so uh, this commander, he brings Paul out with all of these officials. He, he places him right before them. And, and here's what scripture says. Paul, he looked straight at them. And the word that is being used here is such an intense word. Paul is staring them down. He is looking directly into the crowd with a very intense stare to grab their attention. Paul wants everybody on the edge of their seat and he is just giving them the strongest gaze. And, and uh, he's staring at the Sanhedrin, this judicial body, and, and he says, brothers, I love that, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. By saying brothers, like he's, he's making himself an equal. Like, that's not how people addressed this judicial body. Normally, people would start by saying, rulers and elders of the people, please hear what I have to say. But not Paul. He says, brothers, we're equals. Uh, leader to leader, or maybe just Jew to Jew. 
uh, this is, this is uh, just ruffling the feathers of everybody listening. And he says, look, I, I, everything that you're accusing me of, I actually live in good conscience. Our conscience isn't always uh, the best thing to follow and to measure life by, but Paul's not saying, like, I feel good about bad behavior. The Apostle Paul is saying, everything that you have accused me of, uh, it's just, there's no merit to it. Like, I haven't done it. Uh, I'm clean of all of your accusations. Uh, Everything that I have been doing, I just want you to know, Jesus told me to do. And the high priest who is standing in this group, standing in the crowd, he absolutely hates what Paul is saying. He hates that Paul uh, isn't giving him the respect that he feels he deserves by calling him brother, by creating this, this equal playing field. He's, he's not happy with how Paul isn't giving him the respect that Jewish law says he deserves. Uh, and, and he also uh, hates that Paul says that he's hearing things from God and he is being obedient to what God is calling him to do. This is the biggest of deals to the high priest. So this is what happens. The high priest Ananias, he ordered those who were standing next to him to strike him on the mouth. It's so violent. It's so crazy. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you on the mouth, you whitewashed wall. Like the crowd must have been like, what is he doing? What is he saying? Could you, did you hear he called him a whitewashed wall? You're sitting there, you're judging me according to the law, and yet, yet in violation of the law that you're ordering me to be strong. Are you kidding me? Paul's like, are you kidding me? And you might uh, remember that Jesus called a group of Pharisees whitewashed tombs. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. You know, uh, whitewashing a wall was sort of a sign to people that you're getting close to a dead body. If you touched a dead body, you were cursed. You had to go through all kinds of ceremonial cleanings. It was just so, like, uncool. It's uncool today, but it's so uncool religiously uh, in this first century. And so Paul's like, you know what? You're just like a whitewashed wall. You're like a whitewashed tomb. You, you're trying to make yourself look so good on the outside, but you are just filled with dead rubbish on the inside. It is such powerful language. But, you know, Paul knew once he found out that this was a, a chief priest, he, he knew uh, that he was out of order. He knows the law, right? You know, Paul's like really smart. He remembers from Leviticus to not act unjustly when deciding a case. Like while Paul is wrong, he also knows that this chief priest is wrong in the way that he is behaving, in the way that he's acting. And, and it really doesn't matter if you are in a Jewish court or if you're hanging out with some Roman law people. Like a judge is supposed to act uh, with impartiality. What you would expect from a, a high priest is for the high priest to be genuine, for, for them to be thoughtful, for them to be wise, thinking through what you're talking about, respectful, not to be hot-headed, not to be arrogant. You know, it, it's unfortunate that uh, what we're seeing here is that the, the Jews, they don't even follow their own laws as well as the Romans follow their laws. You know, remember, Paul's receiving so many benefits because he's a Roman citizen. And, and uh, these Jews, they're not even playing by their own rules. So even though the high priest is in the wrong, Paul is not off the hook. Like what he did and the way that he did it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't good. There's an edge to Paul. Like he understood the law and he was quick to respond. In fact, you know, we see rebuking of religious leaders happening all through scripture, but it wasn't welcome here in this pretrial. And the way that Paul did it, uh, it means that he broke the law. In fact, look at verses four and five. You stand, this is what Paul is saying. Those standing nearby, 
They said, do you dare revile God's high priest? Do you dare take advantage of him? Do you tear and talk to him like that? He's like, "I, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest, replied Paul, for it is written, you must not speak evil of a ruler of your own people. You know, Paul seems a little bit right here in this verse to be, to be kind of taking back what he said. And I'll tell you this, scholars don't agree with what's happening here in the text. Like there are a few views. And let me just, you may be off to the margin if you're a note taker. You might want to write these down. Uh, some scholars say that the reason Paul didn't recognize, like I didn't recognize that that was the high priest, is because Paul's like getting older. His eyesight's getting worse. You see things in scriptures as well as historic writings that allude to maybe, maybe Paul's eyesight was uh, deteriorating. And so maybe he just couldn't see well and he didn't recognize this, uh, this high priest. Uh, Other scholars say that because this was a pre-trial, it wasn't an official trial, that maybe this high priest wasn't wearing his normal robes. Like he wasn't like so obvious in this crowd, like he would be in other crowds. So, So maybe Paul was just like, I didn't recognize him. He looked like every other man in the crowd. And, and some scholars say that maybe Paul was using sarcasm. I kind of like that one. Um, You know, Paul uh, might have been just saying this in a very ironic, sarcastic way. What we know is sarcasm, it's actually a very powerful linguistic tool, and, and Paul might be using it. You know, in the past few months, a study came out about sarcasm and teenagers. It's fascinating. It, it was all over the internet recently, and it came out maybe about six months ago. And here's what it said. Um, you know, uh, psychologists and neuroscientists have found that sarcasm requires the brain to jump through numerous hoops to arrive at the correct interpretation, requiring the brain power, uh, re- requiring more brain power uh, than a literal statement. And although sarcasm is often dismissed as juvenile and snarky, sarcasm is actually evidence of maturity and intelligence in kids. Isn't that crazy? And I know what you're thinking. You're like, if this is true, my kid's a genius, right? Is that what you're thinking? I know, maybe I am. Uh, I'll tell you this though. Many scholars think that Paul was just being sarcastic here, using irony, saying, I didn't know, brothers, that, that he, that this man was a high priest. And uh, by the way, think about it. Like a high priest shouldn't have acted the way that Ananias acted. You know, it, it, his behavior wasn't like that of a high priest. Uh, but his hypocrisy goes even deeper, you know, than his behavior here in the trial. I mean, uh, it's not here in the text, but what we know from historic writings is that Ananias, he was a wealthy, arrogant, immoral, dishonest, greedy leader. He was not well respected. He was cruel. Uh, And and, uh, we also learned that he kind of had these under the table deals with Rome. And so there were Jewish zealots who just hated him for the way that he treated his own people and the, the uh, under-the-table actions that were happening with the Roman government. So much so that he ended up being murdered, assassinated by some zealots. Uh, it, just a reminder, Paul, Paul isn't sin-free here in, in this text. He's not sin-free at all, just like you and I. Uh, he's been redeemed, he's living a transformed life, but he's not fully transformed. So maybe a little bit of his, his carnal attitude slips out as he's talking I think maybe he could be reciting this verse showing that he has great respect for the office, but not the person. 
You know, and then Paul makes a shrewd move to, to get uh, the attention just off of him. This is incredible. Look at this. Uh, when Paul realized that one part of them were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the Sanhedrin, in this court, he cried out, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. I am being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. He is pointing to the gospel. When, when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. It's like mission accomplished. The, the intention uh, is working. Uh, for the Sadducees, here's what we know about the Sadducees. that they, they don't believe in the resurrection. They say there's no resurrection. There's no resurrection of Jesus. There's no resurrection of those who are following Jesus. The bodily resurrection doesn't exist. And they also don't believe in, in angels or spirits, but the Pharisees, the Pharisees, they, they affirmed all of these things. You know, Paul is absolutely pointing to the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ is the redeemer, that, that people who give their life to Jesus Christ can be redeemed and that one day Jesus will return for his people. You know, scripture teaches and, and we believe that God will raise the dead bodily and he will judge the world, assigning uh, an unbeliever to eternal condemnation and conscious punishment while uh, believers to an eternal blessed joy with the Lord. Like that's what Paul is saying here just by trying to divide the crowd. He knows it's going to work. He knows that the, the men in this audience, they're split. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul compares our earthly bodies to seed uh, and, and our eternal bodies as a plant, like the old becoming new. You put the seed in the ground, that's your old body. It goes in one way, it comes out another way. It rises, it's new, it's different. Uh, look at 1 Corinthians 15, 40. Uh, there are heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly body is different from that of the earthly one. God is making all things new. He is continually making all things new. And one day, everything will be new. As some of us, we've been working on our bodies, haven't we? I mean... Uh, you know, I know you're at home right now watching because you're like on the elliptical, probably, right? Isn't that true? Uh, you know, we're trying to maybe lose weight. We're trying to look a certain way. Uh, maybe we're exercising to get that beach body because summer is right around the corner. I mean, it was, it was 40 degrees this week. I saw people out in shorts and tank tops. Welcome to the Midwest. You know, we have scars maybe that we wish were gone, wounds that we would like healed. And maybe, maybe we're not as able as we want to be. God is making all things new. And, and that includes you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Those who have been redeemed are constantly being transformed and sanctified, being made new, being made new until one day we have resurrected bodies. Praise God. This is such a powerful topic for the crowd listening. I mean, Paul, uh, he's been shrewd in this moment. It's incredible what he thought of. And he, he knew that bringing up the resurrection of the dead, it would split the audience. Not only is he pulling the attention off of himself, he's also gaining some favor with some of his enemies. Look at verse 9. Uh, the shouting grew louder at this point. I mean, the, the crowd is divided. The Sadducees and Pharisees, they're shouting. The crowd grew louder. And some of the scribes of the Pharisee party, they got up and they argued vehemently. Like now they're passionately arguing for Paul. We find nothing evil in this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? Mission accomplished. He split his audience, but, but that doesn't mean all the attention he wanted uh, was away from him. Check this out. Uh, when the dispute became violent, so it was bad and now it's getting worse, the commander feared that Paul might be torn apart. 
uh, he ordered the troops to go down to take him away from them and to bring him in to the barracks. Get Paul out of here, get him in. Uh, you know, this trial has been so crazy, or this pre-trial. I mean, the Roman commander called it, and he's not discovering anything new. You know, the Jewish council is still angry. They're not getting what they want. The commander, he still has no answers. He's not getting what they want. And the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul is still in custody. But you know what? The Apostle Paul is not worried about getting free. The Apostle Paul is where he is because he's on assignment. What the Apostle Paul isn't seeing is people coming to Christ through the message that he's given. And that's got to be wildly discouraging for a man as passionate about the gospel as he is. Look at Acts uh, 23 verse 11. The following night, like we're just talking about these days are just starting to pile up. And Paul is experiencing long, discouraging days. I mean, there was the journey to get in Jerusalem. Uh, there's this trial. Then there's these mobs, uh, uh, you know, being detained. I mean, this guy had to be exhausted. You know, Paul's passion for the gospel and his love for people who are not yet following Jesus, all, all of these opportunities to share the gospel in front of crowds, it must have been incredibly discouraging. So the following night, the Lord stood by him. This doesn't say it was a vision, like, like the resurrected Jesus appears to Paul. And he said, have courage. Have courage. For as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, Paul, you've done so well. The ministry that you have done up to this point, it has been so good. And now it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. Not only what you have done has been good, but where you're heading, like you are on point, you are on assignment. You have my favor and I want to encourage you. That's what's happening here in the text. Paul is essentially uh, done with his ministry in Jerusalem and, and Jesus is pointing him forward. And I just love this. I love picking up themes that we see in scripture. And uh, if you haven't picked this up already, I just want to, to, to take note. Uh, maybe in your Bible, underline, underline, the Lord stood by him. Like this is just one of those moments where God continues to say throughout scripture in the Old Testament into the New Testament, fear not, take courage, have encouragement. Why? Because I'm with you. Jesus says to Paul, I'm with you. Don't take courage in your circumstances, Paul. Take courage in the fact that I am with you. You know, you and I, we don't take courage in our circumstances. At least we shouldn't. We get to take courage in the fact that God is with us. You know, life can be so miserable when our, when our joy and our happiness and our encouragement level is based on our circumstances. Because I'll tell you this, our circumstances can change in a moment's notice. Your circumstances never ask you if it's okay to change. But guess what? Jesus is absolutely the same yesterday, today, and forever. The, the Jesus we read about from the first century in the New Testament is the same Jesus who offers a sacrifice for each and every one of us. It's the same Jesus who gave his life as a sacrifice to pay the debt that you and I owe for the sin in our lives. It's the same Jesus. It's the same payment. It's worth just as much as it ever was. He's the same. If we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, like, he is the same. That's the same Jesus. When we find ourselves in difficult situations like, like this, or, or maybe our, our goal might be to get out of whatever difficult situation you and I are in, 
you know, Paul, uh, he's not in a situation he needs to escape from. He's right where God wants him, but he does need some encouragement because of how tough things are getting. And that's exactly why Jesus does what he does. Jesus affirms the ministry that he's had and he reminds him and points him to the future. Uh, look, at, look at verse 12. When it was morning, uh, another day, when it was morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under a curse. They are together, you know, pledging something that they're not going to eat or drink until they kill Paul. Uh, they were more than 40 of these men, 40 of them band together for this plot. These men, they went to the chief priests and the elders and they said, you know, we have bound ourselves under a solemn curse that we won't eat anything until we have killed Paul. Uh, so now there's pressure. They're trying to earn favor from these religious leaders. Uh, along with the Sanhedrin, uh, make a request to the commander to bring, uh, to bring him down to you as if you were going to investigate his case just a little more thoroughly. But before he gets near, we will be ready to kill him. This is exactly what these religious leaders wanted. They can't tear him apart with their own hand. Now they got volunteers. The plot to kill Paul, it's just growing. And by the way, nothing is surprising here. Not this crazy oath because it was just this, you know, rash decision. Not the way that the, the religious leaders are behaving or these Jewish zealots. Nothing surprising. It, it moves from this like public mob that wanted to tear them apart to a private group of vigilantes. And what we're doing here is we're seeing all of Paul's ministry in Jerusalem has now shifted to where he's going. You know, God is working out and redirecting him from Jerusalem into Rome. Look at verse 16. But the son of Paul's sister. What? Where is this from? Like, we don't know where Paul's family is. We haven't heard of a, a sister or a nephew up to this point. 23 chapters and not a mention of family. You know, hearing about this ambush, the, his nephew, he came and, and entered the barracks and reported everything that he had heard to Paul. He's just sharing it all. And Paul called one of the centurions and he said, hey, hey, take this young man to the commander because he has something to report to him. You know, we have no idea where Paul's family is or where they're coming from. And it kind of feels like a strange detail. But when you realize God is working everything out for his glory to keep Paul on assignment, you're like, oh. Of course, God is coming up with a way not only to work out his redirection, but to activate his plan to redirect Paul into Rome. Look at verse 18. So uh, this, this guard, this soldier, he took him, brought him to the commander, and he said, uh, the prisoner Paul, like this is so funny to me because like Paul's a prisoner. Look at all the freedom that he has as a Roman citizen. He has access to people. Uh, he's able to ask guards to do something and they're, they're, they're like listening to him. They're not ignoring him. You know, the prisoner Paul called me and he asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand and he led him aside and inquired privately, what is it that you have to report to me? You know, Paul's nephew shares everything that we just read. He shares everything about the plot, everything that he knows, everything that he heard, and then he pleads with the commander. He says, please don't let anybody persuade you to take Paul back down to investigate whatever they want to investigate more thoroughly. Please don't do it. And in verse 22, the commander, the commander dismisses the young man and instructed him, hey, this is going to be our secret. Which is interesting because what the commander is about to do is incredibly in Paul's favor. He's like to the nephew, just keep this to yourself. 
I'm going to do something about this. You can trust that. But you, you're done. Thank you for your information. Don't tell anybody that you have informed me about this. So in an effort to protect Paul, this Roman citizen from, from being murdered, uh, what the text reads now is all that the commander does to protect Paul. Uh, the commander pulls together 470 soldiers, like horsemen and soldiers. Some are marching, some are on horses, and uh, they're, they're making a path. They're, they're getting Paul, you know, to Caesarea. Uh, they want to get him to, to Felix, who, who's the governor, who's, you know, a little higher ranking than the commander here. And it's not really clear why 470 Roman soldiers. It's kind, of, it's kind of interesting, right? I mean, it's not clear whether the assassins that were after Paul were so crazy and so strong that they needed 470 Roman soldiers to protect Paul. Or what I think might be more likely is, is that God was reassuring Paul. Who gets an escort like this? I'm with you. Do you feel it? Can you see it? You know, Claudius, uh, he also wrote a letter that, uh, that he sent with that, that group of soldiers uh, to, to take Paul in this letter to the, the governor. And in the letter, Claudius, he just makes himself out to look so good. Like he talks about the good things that he did to this, you know, governor who outranks him. You know, he, he's basically saying, hey, I handled this situation uh, so wisely. It was so good. Uh, but I just, I just can't figure out what's going on here. So I'm just getting this guy up to you. I'm sending him to you. One thing I know is, is it's some kind of theological issue that doesn't matter to us in Rome. And so I'm just getting this Roman citizen out of here. Really, he's just passing the buck is basically what Claudius is doing here. He's passing the buck on to this governor. And what we know is that God's plan is in action. Like it's happening. Hey, Paul, your ministry in Jerusalem, that's what Jesus said. It was so good. And now I've got this assignment for you in Rome. He's not in Rome yet, uh, but this is a pit stop before he gets there. It's such a serious matter too. When they, when they send the guards and when they send Paul, like they start at night. They leave at night so that nobody really expects this to happen. And they travel about halfway, 35 miles of the 60 or 70 mile hike. Uh, and uh, everybody then turns around and heads back to Jerusalem, except the horsemen. So it's just Paul and a bunch of dudes on horses. Uh, it, it must have been just this epic scene. I would have loved to, to see that. Uh, they hand him over to Felix, who promises Paul a fair trial. And, and it ends, this chapter just ends with Paul waiting. He's just waiting. And when you and I, when we're, when we're waiting in the middle of big things, when when we're waiting on big news, when we're waiting on people around us, when we're waiting within troubles and difficult decisions, especially when we don't have answers, waiting is so hard. Waiting is so incredibly hard. And Paul is waiting in the middle of some of the craziest of life's experiences. And this single verse, Scripture says, The Lord stood by him and said, Have courage. If your Bible's out, like underline that. If your version Bible is open, click it, highlight it. Like that, that is so powerful. But I, I got to tell you, I really love what the New Living Translation says here. Look at this. That night, the Lord appeared to Paul and he said, be encouraged. I want you to, I want you to find joy in knowing that, that I am with you and you are on assignment. 
Like, it seems like, like Paul is in desperate need of some encouragement at this point in his ministry and in his life. I know I would. You know, it can, it can be pretty discouraging when, you know, everybody seems to be against you, when the world is surrounding you, but they're not letting you out. They're not letting you really know what's going on. That's what is happening to Paul. And when you know that there's a hard road ahead of you and you just have experienced so many hard things, Jesus knew that Paul needed that encouragement. He needed this boost. And while we probably won't ever receive the level of persecution that Paul experienced, that doesn't mean that you and I don't need encouragement in the middle of life's most difficult situations. You know, several years ago, uh, I heard a pastor named Ray Johnson. He's a, a pastor out in Southern California. Um, he said, the best thing that I can do for myself is to be encouraged and to stay encouraged. I love that. I absolutely love that. This was true for the Apostle Paul. You know, that's true for me as a leader. That is true for all of us as people. We've got to find encouragement and stay encouraged. Like the level of encouragement in our lives, it, it really does dictate the kind of parents that we're becoming. Uh, the level of encouragement in our life, it, di it dictates how, how good my marriage is. It dictates uh, the people that we're becoming. And by the way, that's not just a statement about us. That's a, that's a radically powerful statement for us to acknowledge about the generations behind us. Like the people that the generations behind us are becoming is being influenced by their, their level of, of encouragement. Discouragement is absolutely devouring our culture. You know, Jesus was proud of Paul's ministry and he was spurring him on to the future. And right smack dab in the middle, he spends time encouraging Paul. And maybe some of you might need encouragement in the middle of singleness. You know, if you're single and you long to be married, what I want you to know is that the level of encouragement in your life will dictate the person that you're becoming. And I'll tell you this, the more encouraging you are, the more attractive you are. Uh, you know, our marriages, those of you who are married, uh, far too many marriages are, are won or are lost based on the level of encouragement that lives inside that relationship. You know, I, I've never heard anybody say, my marriage is so great. It is amazing. So we've decided to split up. No one ever says that. Or, or maybe students. Have you ever heard anybody say, my classes are going so well. I love the campus. I decided to just drop out. You know, maybe for different reasons, but not because of their level of encouragement. Or maybe you've said, you know what? My friend group is so great. They're so supportive. My friend group is so loving that I have decided to isolate myself. You know, I just want to be away from everybody. The level of encouragement that we have dictates the lives that we live and the people that we're becoming. And when you and I, when we find ourselves encouraged, I'll tell you, life is just better. Encouragement doesn't mean things are easy, but it does dictate how you navigate through those tough things. Discouragement is absolutely an open door to some kind of quick fix, swooping in to provide some kind of circumstantial, temporary satisfaction. Uh, it's discouragement that pushes people toward making decisions, sometimes permanent decisions, that pull us away from everything in life that's good. If I don't stay encouraged, I will never be the husband my wife needs me to be. I will never be the dad my kids need me to be. I'll never be the pastor God's calling me to be. I don't know if you've thought of it this way, but you can actually seek out encouragement. But let me qualify that, okay? 
Uh, it's not an invitation to, to go do what you want. It's, it's not an invitation to beg people to be nice to you. It's uh, seeking out encouragement. It's not an invitation to seek out things that you know you shouldn't do just because it feels good. It's not a get out of jail free card for things that you have done. And it's not a, an invitation to go on a shopping spree, no matter how many of those things feel good. That's not what I'm talking about. You know, when, when we look at this verse, when we look at the Apostle Paul and what Jesus said to him, three major benefits jump out uh, for Paul that fill up his encouragement bucket. And if you ask yourself three questions, uh, it will certainly send you on a pathway to keeping your encouragement bucket full. Uh, here's the first question. Maybe write these down. Uh, am I confident that Jesus is with me? Am I confident that Jesus is with me? Like, like we want to be confident and courageous and, and encouraged, not because you and I have the strength to do it alone on our own, but because God is with us. You know, we see time and time again that God is with us all throughout Scripture. It is one of those major themes that continues to pop up. Be strong, be courageous. Why? Because I am with you. Moses has that confidence in Exodus. God says that to Abraham. Uh, God commands that to Joshua. King David, he claims this truth in the, the most famous psalm ever, Psalm 23. And here Jesus is saying it to Paul, fear not. Be courageous. Be encouraged. It's paired with the fact that the Lord is standing right by him. You know, this is a promise for you and I too. Matthew chapter 28, we see Jesus talking to his disciples. This is after his resurrection and it's before his ascension. And he says, I will be with you always. It's a promise to those of us who are following Jesus. We have the confidence that he is with us. If you have given your life to Jesus Christ, you can hold on to the promise that whatever you're walking through, whatever is causing fear in you, whatever uh, courage you need and and whenever you're discouraged, God is saying, I'm with you. I'm standing by you. When life is good and when life is tough, Jesus, he stands there with us. Here's the second question. Is my faith growing? You know, we find that people who are growing in their faith, they're just much more encouraged people. There's just a higher level of encouragement in the life of somebody who is learning and growing and they're deepening their faith. They're sharing their faith. They're deepening their faith. There's, there's something to spiritual growth that, that you can't find anywhere else. And, and we see that in, in Paul's life. I mean, studying the life of the Apostle Paul is actually a little intimidating because this guy never took his foot off of the accelerator. But what he models time and time again is that his spiritual bucket was full. Like he was constantly filling his spiritual bucket. He spent time with God. He spent time in a growing relationship with Jesus. He spent time with other people encouraging them and teaching them about Jesus. Like he was active in his faith. It's like he was constantly sharpening the pencil. That, that pencil never, never went dull. There's a passion living inside of him that I wish I could duplicate in my life. So I just ask you, you know, are, are you regularly in the Word? Are you spending time reading your Bible, asking questions, and discovering who you are in your relationship with Jesus? You know, are you in a community with other people who are following Jesus, who are sold out to your spiritual success? That community matters. That's part of filling up that spiritual bucket. Um, do, you, do you come to church to worship God? Or, or do you come to church to evaluate everything that you see? Um, because if, if we're really filling up our spiritual bucket, we're going to find an incredible measure of encouragement in our life.
Here's, here's the third thing I see in Paul. To ask the question, am I future focused? A lot of us, like, with our victories, we live in the past. Like, oh, I remember the good old days. Or some of us are letting our past hold us back. We just can't get past our past. But the Apostle Paul here is invited by Jesus to focus on the future. To not let his past define him, but to let his ministry and his experience refine him. Same is true for you and I. Stop, I mean, my kids, uh, they tell me how, how scared they are to drive one day because they're afraid they're going to have to parallel park somewhere. <laughs> do you know why that's so intimidating? Because nobody likes to drive backwards. Nobody likes to do life looking through the rearview mirror if that's the direction you're heading all the time. Some of us need to let our past refine us. And I'm talking about the highest highs. Stop bragging about them and learn from them. And the lowest lows, I want to encourage you to get past your past. Find redemption and forgiveness in the person of Jesus and start moving forward. You know, those of us who, who are living in discouragement, we might be, you know, letting our past mistakes define us more than we would admit. You know, God wants you to use your experiences. He wants us to, to look through the front of the car, not in the rearview mirror as we drive in the wrong direction with our entire life. Here's what I know. We are all a work in progress. And if you're more discouraged than encouraged, I just want, I just want to point you to these questions. Uh, write them down, because this is exactly what's happening in the life of Paul. Uh, you know, he is confident that Jesus is with him. Uh, his faith is constantly growing, and he's, he's focused forward. He, in the text right now, is on his way to Rome. And he is thinking not about his own circumstances, wishing he had freedom. He is thinking about the conversations he's going to have and the gospel message he gets to share. Hey, I love you guys, and I, I do. I hope these weekends are radically encouraging for each and every one of you. I love that you've joined us. Uh, let, me, let me pray us out of here. God, thanks for today. Thanks for your love, your pursuit. God, thanks for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that his sacrifice was the perfect payment for the sin of the world, and that those who are redeemed and transformed, that you're coming back for them. Thanks for Paul and his example. Thanks for this message. God, fill up our encouragement cup. Help us pursue you. And in that, I just become more encouraged and encouraging people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.